So to, so today's topic is uh, we're going to be covering Hanan and Dover Tzli. Now, Hanan is a mystical word. I, in fact, had never even heard of it before I started the laws of uh, Basra B'chalav when I was in yeshiva. And it is a acronym for, as we're going to talk about later, Chaticha Naase Nevela, that which literally translates into the peace or the Chaticha becomes a Nevela, which means something which is non-kosher. Now, what's interesting about about Hanan, and the reason why I'm trying to cover it, um, I'm to cover it early in our series rather rather than later is that while kind of in its bald form, meaning real questions that really pertain to Hanan are not necessarily that common every day, but the concept is foundational for a lot of the topics that we will cover. It's going to be something that lies at the bottom of a lot of conversations that we're going to be talking about later, and therefore I want to cover it earlier rather than later. The idea behind Hanan is a very simple question. The question is as follows, right? As we know that when you have milk and meat, it re- milk and meat, right, so, or, or, um, or, uh, or anything which is non-kosher, and it drops into kosher food. So many of us have heard of this notion of nullification in 60, right? That if you have 60 times, right, the, the volume of kosher to non-kosher, it nullifies the non-kosher and the, and the entire food is permissible to eat. What this means is it's not magic, okay? The idea is, is that 60 times is a, what we call a umdana, it's an assumption, okay? It's an assumption that generally speaking for the vast majority of foods, 60 is a reasonable upper bound on what the proportions have to be not to be able to taste the non-kosher food inside your mixture. So, if you have a piece of pork that falls into a pot that's cooking, even if the piece of pork is small and the rest of the pot is large, if you can figure out which piece is the piece of pork, of course you have to throw it out. Even though it's you know far smaller than 1 to 60, it is still not permissible to keep it there. The idea behind 1 to 60 is, is that we know that all foods, or most foods, give off a flavor. And there is a derivation from the Pasuk of Hatmeim, and it's a big discussion in the Gemara, which we're going to maybe brush on later, but it's very conceptual, and even though kind of practically it comes up a lot, but not in a very straightforward form. There's a discussion of something called Tam Ke'ikar, that the taste of something is like the thing itself. Okay. So therefore, the taste of pork is just as forbidden as pork. Now, the questions you can ask, and and people have asked, is what if we replicate the taste exactly, but we don't actually have the actual pork? And that's an interesting question. Strictly speaking, it's not going to be an issue, but I I don't want to get into it now. Okay? But the flavor of something non-kosher is a problem. And therefore, there is an assumption, okay, that generally speaking, in a ratio of 1 to 60, you can taste it. Now, 
there is a long discussion, which we're going to get to in a different class, about what's called a te'imas kfeila. Now, te'imas kfeila means that if you have a non-Jewish chef or somebody with a very uh, refined palate, and the reason why non-Jewish is because it has to be somebody who is A, familiar with non-kosher flavors, and B, somebody for whom it is uh, permissible to actually taste them, right? And the Gemara brings a similar example. If a... Uh, uh, if a Kohen is allowed to try food, if there's a concern if some truma was mixed in, or, you know, if a uh, Jew is allowed to try, you know, food for a Nazir, whatever, there's a discussion about that. But what, but what we actually care about, right, and is whether or not the food tastes like that food. So strictly speaking, right, and we'll talk about whether or not it's actually applicable these days, but 60 was an upper bound in a case where you don't have a chef handy, right? Not many of us travel with our personal chefs, right? So therefore, generally speaking, you know, you don't have your own personal chef, okay? But if you have a chef or if you have somebody who can taste it for you, so even if it was less than 1 in one, one 60, as long as you can trust the person, right? And we'll get to whether or not this is actually practical, Okay, but, but from a theoretical perspective, if it doesn't have tom, if it doesn't have flavor, it is okay. That is the halach. So therefore, and this is only true for most foods, and I don't want to get into this now, but there are things that are called mili da'avida litaima. There are things that are very, very kind of strongly flavored, like certain spices or whatever. And over there, 1 in 60 doesn't work, and there's a big discussion about those types of things, and uh, it's, it's not relevant for our, for our conversation. But what is very relevant is, let's think about the following scenario. You have milk and meat, right? Let's say you have one ounce of meat and one ounce of milk that got mixed together, okay? And they were cooked together, and they became genuine, real basar b'chal of midoraisa. They became real milk and meat, completely and totally forbidden. Now, then this mixture falls into either a pot of meat or a pot of milk. Okay? What kind of proportions do you have to have here right now? So, one may think that this prohibitive identity is dynamic, right? Meaning to say, as long that, that the entire kind of forbidden nature of the food is the fact that the milk and meat happen to be in proximity at this particular moment. However, if they fall into either a vat of meat or a vat of milk, then that should reset the entire equation, and all you should need would be 60 times against the outsider, right? So either 60 times against the milk or 60 times against the meat, right? But but as long as you have 60 against the... Uh, um, uh, forbidden item, that should be enough. However, Hanan, the principle of Hanan, of Chatich Hanas and Nevela, says that this is not true. And it teaches us a very important halacha, that if you have milk and meat that mix together in the situation where they are forbidden, now you have what's called in kind of the, the Talmudic language, a new chafza of Isser, meaning to say, you have a new, you have a new forbidden entity over here. This milk and this meat no longer exist in the independent, free-spirited teenage life that they had before. 
Okay? They now are married and they have responsibilities for each other. Okay? They have merged. And therefore, now the meat is forbidden because of Basar Bechalov and the milk is forbidden because of Basar Bechalov and they have one family name and therefore when they fall into this vat of milk or this vat of meat, you now need 120 ounces against these two ounces because they now have a new prohibited identity. Okay? And this is a very important problem because if let's say, right, you decided to take a non-kosher, and we're going to get to Hanan, you know, more in depth, but let's say you take a non-kosher spoon, right, or a milk and meat spoon, right, or a, you know, a dairy spoon, and you stir a small pot of meat with it, right, making the meat forbidden. And then you go and you pour this meat into a larger pot. So normally, right, you would think, well, great, so all I need is 60 times against a spoon. But the answer is that no, you don't. You actually need 60 times against a small pot. Because once it, once it has a moment of being forbidden, okay, it now the entire thing becomes forbidden, and now you need 60 times against it. That's the principle of Hana. And I hope it will become a little bit clearer as we go through this particular case. The next topic we're going to talk about tonight, which is very relevant for this, is what's called Davart Tzli. Okay? Now, what's a Davart Tzli? Davart Tzli means a roasted thing or a baked thing. Normally we say, and this is very intuitive to us when we think about liquids, right, or stews or soups, right, that you take some kind of flavorful thing, right, and you pour it in, right, or you take some piece of meat and you put it in, right, that generally speaking, yes, with certain kind of inefficiencies, but generally given, given enough time, flavor distributes uniformly, okay? Yes, obviously, you know, meat tastes meatier than potato, you know, whatever, but, but generally speaking, flavor as it's absorbed, right, as it travels, given enough cooking time, right, and as long as things are in the same environment and cooking together, right, to quote one of these uh, 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 YouTube chefs, you know, as the flavors get to know each other better, right? Flavor distributes uni uniformly, generally speaking. So therefore, if you take a piece of, you know, pork or a piece of cheese, whatever, and you drop it into a kosher meat pot, right? Generally speaking, we assume, right, that if you sample any part of the, of the stew, given enough time, right, Given enough time, if you sample any part of the stew, you should have a reasonably uniform, uniformly distributed amount of flavor, and therefore we could kind of combine all the contents of the pot when we think about this ratio of 1 to 60. As you could kind of think about intuitively, this is much harder to assume when you're talking about a dried food, right? If you take a piece of dry meat, right, roasted, dried, seared meat, right? And you pour some flavor or some dairy or you touch it with a piece of cheese on one side. Generally speaking, even given time, right, you would not assume that the flavor would distribute itself uniformly throughout the meat, right? It doesn't travel as well. It's not as efficient. It's not like a liquid. And this is called Dovert Sleep. 
Now, when you have a roasted thing, there is a distinct difference in halacha between if this piece of meat or this item is fatty, because fatty has more, something which is fatty has more liquid inside of it, therefore flavor kind of travels through it better, which is why, you know, generally speaking, through fatty pieces of meat, it's easier to kind of get, get flavored, you know, deep, deep, um, deep inside the meat. It depends if the non-kosher food which you dropped on it is fatty, how well it absorbs, whatever. So that's a, that's a very big discussion. And we're going to get to it probably in a different class. What's relevant to us is that we don't really have a good estimation of what's considered to be sufficiently fatty or lean to be able to make subtle distinctions between how much it absorbs. Therefore, we, have fo- we assume the following two stringencies. The first is that we assume it does distribute itself throughout the whole piece. Therefore, if you have some non-kosher milk that's spilled on a piece of meat, right, and the meat is less than 60 times against a cup of milk, we assume the entire piece of meat is non-kosher. Obviously, we're assuming the meat is hot, okay? The second stringency is that we do not assume that it distributes itself uniformly, so even if you pour a gigantic cup of, sorry, a small cup of milk on a gigantic piece of meat, which is way more than 60, you have to cut off 2.4 centimeters around the area where you poured the milk because we assume that within that distance the, meat, the milk is most concentrated and therefore you have to cut out that piece. It's called kedei netila and throw it out. Okay? So those are the two stringencies regarding a piece of meat. Now, let's go to our story. Once we know these two facts. Zlata was dealing with Betsy, right? Betsy was this gigantic rib roast. Now, there are two points in the story that are critically important. The first, if you'll notice, right, was the fact that the pot was filled with boiling liquid, making it a really steamy, liquidy, boiling environment. The second important fact is that she placed the roast on top of the bones, right? Not that the bones are important, but that the roast was not submerged. It was only partially submerged. And the third part that we're going to see is extremely important over here, is that she covers the pot as soon as she puts the meat in. I also, if you looked at the document that I included, right, I mentioned over there that I'm going to make a few simplifying assumptions. The first is that the meat is hot, right? Otherwise, our story is not interesting because obviously if she poured milk and the meat wasn't hot, right, she can just take it out and wash it off. The second situation was that the meat was not 60 times against the volume of the milk, which we're going to see, you know, makes it very interesting. The third thing is that the meat does not stick out of the top of the pot, which is also going to be important, but it's pretty self-evident in the story because she's able to cover the pot. So now, what is going to happen over here with this, with this, with this roast? The Talmud in Chulin on 108a has a debate over there, and it talks about it in the Gemara, and there's a debate over there between Rashi and Taisvis about the following scenario. Rashi says that if you have meat that's partially submerged and partially out of, out of the liquid, 
So if you recall, we said, right, that when you have a dried food, right, a roasted piece of meat, which is what the piece of meat that's sitting outside this liquid is, right, and you pour milk on it, so then, right, what's going to happen? So it absorbs into the meat, right, making the meat non-kosher, right, but since it's roasted, it doesn't leave the meat right? It doesn't leave that area, right? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but generally speaking, it stays concentrated, as we said, towards the top. So you'll say, amazing. So you'll, all you have to do is cut off the top and, right, and, then, and then you're done. But the problem is, is that since it's is a dried thing, the piece of meat itself becomes non-kosher. Then, this woman covered the pot, causing the water to boil up, causing all the steam, and now it goes from being a roasted food to being a cooked food, and now the flavor begins to distribute itself uniformly throughout the pot. But now we have a problem, because we have Hanan. Because when she poured the cup of milk on the meat, the meat became non-kosher, and only afterwards did she cover it later, right? If she only covers it later, right? And the flavor starts to uh, distribute throughout the pot. So now we don't have 60 times in this pot against this entire piece of meat. So everything should be non-kosher here, right? That's the opinion of Rashi. The opinion of the Ri of Taisvis is not like that. He says, as long as it's partially submerged, and this is a very important principle in Kashras, is that we, we assume infinite time, meaning to say that if the only thing that is kind of, you know, the only kind of factor that distinguishes, kind of, that, will, that, that, that impedes the spread of flavor is time, meaning that obviously there's a difference as far as distribution between T naught and T plus whatever, right? But if the only issue is time, we assume infinite time, meaning to say we treat the very first second like the first hour. Because we, since we don't have an accurate way of measuring, we kind of assume infinite time. Now, obviously, if you're taking a bite and it tastes like something which you would get in Burger King, then obviously you can't eat it. But the idea is, is that you are allowed to take the first bite. And if you don't taste anything, or you don't kind of noticeably taste any milk, then it's fine. So the Reese says, as long as it's partially submerged, what's going to happen is that the flavor of the milk will distribute itself through the meat, and it will eventually leave the meat and go into the stew. So what the question everyone asks is, okay, but why is this different than a roasted item, which we say stays concentrated near the place where the milk landed? So various commentaries give various explanations, but one of the most kind of simple and uh, straightforward ones is the explanation of the Shach and the Marshal, who explain that since this pot, and this is why I said we don't want the meat sticking out over the edge of the pot, that since this pot is a very humid and moist environment, so therefore we assume that the flavor will distribute itself much more evenly throughout this meat 
than we would assume with a regular roasted dry thing. So therefore, according to the Re, when she poured milk on this, on, on this piece of meat, so it distributes itself through the meat, then it leaves the meat and goes out into the pot, and given infinite time, we would have a uniform distribution of flavor, and therefore, in this case, in our case, you could use, even though there was no 60, even though there uh, was no 60 as far as the meat goes to counter out the milk, to, to counteract, I'm sorry, the milk, but there was 60 in the entire pot against the milk, so so it would be fine. What do we do about Rashi? And according to the halacha, the Taz paskins like Rashi, other people paskin like Rashi, we tend to be stringent for Rashi. Do we have any solution over here? So there is one very important distinction that the Gemara says. That if you cover it right away, if you kind of put the meat in and then you cover it right away, then we assume right away that it's now becomes a humid environment with steam and boiling liquid and everything. And that the way the state in which the meat is right now at that point, given enough time, the flavor will distribute itself uniformly. So therefore, we could, we could rely on 60. And therefore, this, this piece of meat would, would be kosher. So therefore, regardless if you go like Rashi or you go like the Ri, in our stories, Lata is safe, and the food and the meat and everything is 100% kosher. Even though there wasn't 60 times against the meat, since there was a ratio of 1 to 60 between the milk and the, and, and, and the, the meat and the potatoes and the vegetables and everything else inside the pot, and she, she covered it right away, this would be 100% fine. Another application of where Dovertsley came up, and this is actually a true story, right? As opposed to this one, which is, I hope you understand, fictional. I mean, the fact that someone would even call somebody Zlata these days, I hope it's fictional. Um, but I, I have to be careful with that because there are people called, called, called Zlata. So, you know, no, no, no offense to the name Zlata. I already messed up like that once in my life when um, I didn't realize that there are still people called Sprinza until I was dating my uh, wife, and she asked me if I want to guess her second name, and I said, I have no idea what it is, and she said, think about the worst possible name you could think of, so I figured that I'm going to play it safe and choose a name no one has, so I said, Sprinza, and she said, wow, how do you know? Her name is uh, Sprinza Peril. So therefore, I have to be very careful when I do these types of things. So to all Zlatas out there, I truly apologize. It's a beautiful name. But this story isn't true. The story that, that, that was true, is true actually, also a mother-in-law story, is uh, someone called me up, a family friend or member, I'm not going to say who, um, and their mother-in-law came to visit. Now, this, the, the, the mother-in-law... You know, she's uh, she came and she, you know, of course she has to cook for her, you know, not for her son-in-law, God forbid, but she has to cook in law for she has to cook for her, for her grandkids, and you know she's she came and she's gonna make fish, of course she has to make fish, okay, so she was not very well versed in the laws of kashras or in which dishes were what, and I'm not particularly sure how much she cared about that, so she took out a beautiful 
really expensive enamel roasting tray, uh, 100% meat used recently for meat from the from the from the counter from the cabinet. I'm sorry. Took a beautiful piece of salmon, placed it on this tray with a little bit of oil on the bottom, sprinkled on the top some really expensive grated like hard dry cheese and very cheerfully roasted the salmon for dinner. I'm sorry. The story was that it was the mother-in-law of the wife. It wasn't the, it was the husband's mother. Changes the the dynamics here. So I get a frantic call from the husband who, you know, saw what happened. His mother is screaming and yelling and shouting about you know, who's not letting her cook for her grandkids and they don't trust her and they don't care about her and obviously they don't love her and obviously they don't want her in her grandkids' life. Um, the wife is, you know, getting really upset that this was a $300 um, uh, roasting tray that they, one of the few things anybody bought them on their, on their wedding registry that was presumably now not kosher because, you know, salmon with cheese was just cooked in there. And this husband was ready to do anything just to make peace in the home. So he called me, he, he, he didn't know what to do. And over here, this is where the laws of Davart become became really, really important. Because if you notice, I didn't mention there was no liquid there. And it wasn't a kind of, you know, salmon is a, you know, as far as fish goes, it's a reasonably fatty fish, but... If you roast it in an open roaster, there's not a lot of steam. There's not a lot of, you know, condensation. There's not a lot of liquid, right? And the cheese that they used, cheese is considered, even though we kind of think of cheese as fatty, but dry, hard cheese, the Shulchanar says explicitly, is considered to be something which is not fatty. It's called the Eidav or Kachosh. So they wanted, so I, I was thinking maybe, yes, the salmon is not kosher, because the salmon absorbed flavor from a meat pot and had cheese on top. But the pot itself, the salmon was nice and thick. It was more than two centimeters thick. So therefore, the pot itself should be fine. Because since this is a roasted thing, we don't assume that it spreads throughout and then leaves the salmon and goes into the pot. And therefore, it should be kosher. So I was, you know, I was still learning Basar B'chalav and I was still, you know, I mean, I still wouldn't have the guts to say that myself, but I called a, you know, one of the very big, big, big postkin in Lakewood to talk, you know, to talk over the question with him. And I told him my uh, reasoning and he agreed with me that the pot, in fact, was kosher, even though the salmon was not. So, you know, that, that, that relationship was saved. But that was another very kind of important application of Davertsli, of a roasted thing. Had, had there been liquid in the pot, or had it been a covered pot, right, a covered thing, then everything would have been over. The only reason why we were safe over there was because it was uncovered, there was no liquid, and it was roasted, and we had a right to say that that, that particular cheese, right, would not leave the food and go into the pot. Okay? You know, as they say with lots of other things, don't please don't try this at home. But, <laughs> but but this is you know a very interesting and practical application. Another application of Hanan happened when I was in Lakewood. Also, a lot of exciting things happened in Lakewood. 
Um, there, and I mentioned this, I think, in a show a couple of times, but this is a kind of re- relevant case, is where somebody put cheese knishes into a challenge wrapped in foil. Now, obviously, they did not realize these were cheese knishes. They were under the impression this was potato knishes. Now, who did it to husband or wife? History is silent on this because they're both claiming the other one did it. So it was a he said, she, uh, uh, she said type of story. But practically speaking, right, they had a lot of guests that day, and they're eating the challenge very happily, and they open up the foil, and inside the foil are these beautiful brown, uh, slightly melty cheese knishes that have been cooking in the challenge very happily. Now, there was no 60 against the entire volume of the cheese knishes, okay? Now, if you remember earlier, right, I mentioned that 60 is an upper bound. So some people over there wanted to say that since when the people ate the challenge did not notice any flavor of cheese, this is a very this it, it, this itself is a very controversial statement, right? To know that whether or not we could rely on ourselves, especially when we weren't looking out for it, right? But they wanted to say that, that theoretically speaking, that if, if that would still be considered to be tasting, like the equivalent of a chef tasting, so since they didn't taste the flavor of cheese because they were eating it, so they can just throw out the knishes and continue eating the chow. The problem was that what they didn't realize was, and what the issue was over there, is that this would have been okay if there was, if, if, if these cheese knishes were put into the chalan, right, cold, and they cooked together the entire time, then there could be a conversation about this. But that wasn't the story. The story was that they had first baked these cheese knishes and put them in nice and hot inside the chalan next to the meat, next to everything, right, steaming hot in a thin layer of foil, right, inside a warmer hot chalan, right, that wasn't hot, it was warm, Right, they put it in, and then, as we have talked about last week with the principle of Dover Gush, right, that these knishes absorbed meat flavor right away. There was no cooking happening yet. They absorbed meat flavor. Then they become milk and meat, right? And since they become milk and meat, it doesn't make a difference later if you can't taste cheese. There is forbidden meat here, right? The meat that was absorbed into the potato, right, it became chanan, right? So whatever meat was absorbed into the knishes at that first moment, right, when they entered any meat flavor or anything, right, that make them non-kosher, it now doesn't make a difference if you can taste cheese or not because there is non-kosher meat flavor here. And therefore, in this situation, chanan really sunk them. All right. So we've covered Hanan, we've covered, you know, Dover Tzli partially. We've saved Zlata, because we've said that, right, that this case, because she covered the pot, because everything, you know, she covered the pot right away, and the food was partially submerged, right, and there was 60 if you combine the meat with everything else in the pot against the milk. So therefore, everything is kosher, right? Don't try this at home, obviously, right? This was all good. Now, one fast just caveat, you know, before we end. What if you're at home, and this happens to you, right? You are very blissfully pouring what you are 100% convinced is almond milk, 
into a stew or into a curry that into into a curry that has meat, big pieces of meat that are sticking out, right? And we're going to have this issue. So as soon as you do it, you as you're pouring, you look and you realize it's regular meat, right? So you say some French words and then you want to quickly cover the pot, right? In order to have this leniency that once it's covered, it's fine. Are you allowed to do that? Or you want to quickly stir it, right? In order for everything to get mixed up equally, are you allowed to do that? So there's some debate about that. Or according to some opinions, it is forbidden because of a principle of what's called ein mevatlim iser lechatchila. We are not allowed to nullify something forbidden, you know, um, you know, you know, lechatchila. I never really have a great translation for the word lechatchila, but meaning in the first place, meaning, you know, a priori, are you allowed to kind of mix, you know, stir the food to make it nullified? So there are some people who say you can, most people say you can't do that in those circumstances. So therefore, it's only good if you had already stirred based on, you know, just by accident or you covered it, but had she kind of realized this and sought to do it herself, it would actually be problematic. All right, we'll stop here. If anybody has any questions, please feel free to uh, ask. Otherwise, I will see you all next week on our next episode.